This is Restless. Here we are this restless summer. We are here continuing the post-mortem on the young, restless, and reformed. And this summer, we are continuing to do a number of interviews. We're actually trying to look ahead. We're not trying to only think about what has come in the past, but what might hold for the church in the future and what was the YRR. So I am here joined as always by Pastor Michael. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, This is restless summer. And so uh, we have to be in good spirits all the time. And uh, so I am. I am in in good spirits and excited to have back on the show with us, Aaron Wren. Um, Aaron, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you want to maybe just share a little bit about yourself? Um, We didn't uh, grab a bio to read for you, but do you want to share a little bit of a bio so that folks who might not know, know kind of who you are and what you do? Sure. I am the co-founder and a senior fellow at American Reformer, which is a nonprofit organization focused on reinvigorating Protestant Christianity in America's religious, political, and cultural life. Uh, You can find all of my writings personally at AaronWren.com. So I'm a writer on essentially Christianity and culture, as well as men's issues. Uh, I also had a previous career uh, as in public policy, uh, writing about cities and researching urban policy, was with the Manhattan Institute for a long time, and I still do some of that today. And then part of that, uh, I was a management consultant uh, for a long time. So that's kind of the professional hat that I bring to bear. That's great. We are glad to have you and here to yeah talk about uh, yeah a number of the subjects, and we'll just see where the conversation goes. Um, I think. Everyone would enjoy um, the Aaron Wren show, the podcast. It's a great show. And so I think you'll find, Aaron, you talk about a really wide variety of topics there. What have you been talking about recently on your podcast? Well, I did one earlier today uh, with some reflections on the reversal of Roe versus Wade. Mm. And again, I tend to look at things through kind of institutional and cultural lenses uh, more than a lot of theological reflections uh, on it. So I, I talk a little bit about that. Um, another one that I talked about was uh, the quest for legacy, how we all, in a, despite living in a world in which sort of individual autonomy and sort of creating your own identity uh, is the norm, we nevertheless long to have a sense of identity that we've inherited. We want to have inherited something uh, and also to have a legacy to pass on mm-hmm. Uh to, to the future, uh, you know, things of that nature. That's that's a lot of uh, the kinds of things that I would talk about in the podcast uh, uh, as well. Yeah, I think I I look forward to your reflection on on Roe v. Wade, and maybe either right at the end of this, if we have time, I may I may ask you a question in regards to the overturning of Roe and the uh, we'll call it the at least the evangelical cooperation with the conservative movement along the way, um, but. For now, I do think the frame that you bring um, to these things, and actually, I know it was one of your interests in the YRR, is this cultural and institutional frame, right? With the work of Brad Vermerlion, how he tracked how the YRR kind of gathered these positions of power um, for you know what they viewed as obviously good purposes. But tell us about why thinking in terms of institutions is so important. 
Well, institutions wield a lot of power. Uh, so you can think about, for example, universities. If you want to get a good job in society today, you practically have to have a college degree. It is a credential that you must possess uh, for the average person. Now, perhaps we need to change that, but the reality is that's what it is today. And not all colleges are created equal. You know, Ivy League institutions, particularly Harvard, Princeton, Yale, are much more influential in terms of opening doors to you and giving you access to elite networks and positions. Uh, one thing that I saw when I was in New York and in DC in the policy world is, yeah, having degrees from these institutions uh, is, is like a credential that makes you be taken seriously in, in certain parts of the country. And so uh, that's, you know, that's an important part of it. It's just one example of an institution you know, the Supreme Court is an institution that wields enormous power. You could think about, uh, you know, the accrediting bodies for universities. So, yes, the universities uh, are institutions that you need to, you know, pay your toll to to get your credentials so you can work. But what do the universities teach and how do they operate? A lot of that is determined by parameters set by the accrediting agencies that determine whether or not your degree actually counts for anything. So there are all these institutions that are interlinked, interconnected, and they wield a lot of power in the world. And, uh, you know, as a result, you know, we have to care about institutions. And ultimately, if you want to accomplish anything, it takes more than, you know, one or two people typically to do it. And so if you want to mobilize uh, more than a handful of people to accomplish anything in the world, uh, institutions uh, are the main way uh, that we do that uh, today, and institutions are the main way that we can perpetuate uh, things after we're gone. That's great. Now, let's add to that the question, what, uh, can, you can speak of conservatives, but even conservative Christians do you, is, in your experience and opinion, do they think this way or act in accord with kind of how you're describing the importance of these things? Christians have been great institution builders. I mean, the Christian church is the oldest institution in the world. Hmm. Uh, there are actual individual churches that go back to the time of the New Testament. Uh, somebody made a comment on Twitter uh, to the effect of, no, all the churches that Paul planted are gone today. Some quip about that. And basically, their idea was, you know, it doesn't really matter if Christianity goes extinct in Europe because it'll spread around the world, et cetera. And of course, someone replied with it. Uh, That's interesting. Here's the current Bishop of Philippi. Here's the current Bishop of Thessaloniki. Here's, I don't remember all of them, but I just went through all these churches and like, here's the bishops of these churches that are still around. And uh, so, you know, the, the church, the church is an institution. And even in the evangelical world, I mean, evangelicals do nothing but create institutions, uh, create uh, new churches, new parachurch organizations, new movements, new nonprofits. I uh, think about American Reformer. It's an institution, right? you know, that I helped co-found. So uh, I would say evangelicals tend to be very interested in institutions 
they tend to be less sanguine about which institutions are critical in terms of power and cultural influence in America. And they also tend to be very quick to abandon existing institutions when they feel that those institutions are uh, drifting left or going woke or whatever. They often have a hair trigger, uh, I've observed, to leave institutions uh, and start new ones, uh, which is a weakness in an important sense. Uh, but they definitely believe in institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this if, seems, um, oh, so I'm ahead. coming uh, right off of having been in Birmingham, Alabama all last week for the, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. And so while they are in just, you know, engaged in, um, you know, a lot of the discussions and the, you know, the assembly in general, uh, one of the things that's on my mind often is the kind of trajectory that is often true of uh, denominations. Um, and uh, one of the things that seems clear to me um, within the Presbyterian Church in America right now is that there are there are concerns about the direction of the denomination in some quarters. Um, and there are many uh, churches and men who seem to be so quick to say, we have to leave. Uh, we have to get out of here. We have to start something new. Um, why is it that conservatives, particularly, it seems to me anyway, maybe I'm wrong and you can tell me, why is it that conservative uh, Christians seem to be um, quick to kind of, you know, like take their ball and go home? Very good question. I don't know all the answers to that, but I do think it's notable that liberals have a very good track record of taking over institutions. Right. And so being afraid that a denomination or another organization is on a trajectory that we've seen many times before uh, certainly is not entirely unwarranted. Uh, it, now, the PCA itself was a product of people who split away from the Southern Presbyterian Church in the 70s. Uh, therefore, the people who populate it already have a mentality of splitting. Yes. So once you've split once, it's much easier to split the second time, which is why second marriages have a higher divorce rate than first marriages <laughs> and so on. Um, now, what I would say about the PCA and, and kind of contradistinction to the mainline Presbyterian churches is there may have been very good reasons to leave, uh, you know, the mainline uh, when they did, because the mainline Presbyterian denominations, like many of the mainline denominations, the denomination controls the property. Yep. And if you have an opportunity to leave and you don't take it, you may find yourself marooned in a very bad place. Uh, whereas the PCA, and I believe all of these split off denominations, the local congregation clearly owns the property and controls yep. what their own future. Therefore, there's less uh, need to leave while the getting get while the getting's good, so to speak. But I do think you know, pure, kind of people who are consist uh, concerned about doctrinal purity or confessionalism or things of that nature uh, tend to do tend to uh, you know have this idea that we're going to leave. And of course, once you leave, that actually weakens the organization yep. and makes it easier for other elements to. Um, kind of take it over, uh, if you will. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you said that, you know, those who have left maybe in the you know recent history, I mean, we still have men within the PCA today who are a part of um, the, you know, initial group that left in 1973 and founded the PCA. Um, but, you know, just within the last few years, as I've become uh, more engaged kind of in these, uh, you know, these denominational politics, in a sense, um, one of the things that happened over the last few years is there was a a group of a handful of men in churches, some with pretty loud voices um, within the PCA who left to start their own denomination. And that's already split again. <laughs> and so, I mean, it does, it does seem like that is really, uh, really common. That's what happened with the original OPC. You know, when they kicked Gresham Mason out of the Northern Presbyterian church, he created the Orthodox Presbyterian church, which very rapidly split into the, the OPC and then the Bible Presbyterian Church. Yeah. So this is not unusual uh, to see these splits. You know, the people who leave to start their own thing. Again, there's probably a personality uh, aspect to it as well. It's people who, you know, maybe have trouble operating in a bigger tent environment, uh, et cetera. And I don't uh, denigrate that because I think it takes all types. You know, we need we need firebrands. Uh, we need sort of some company men. We need a mix of people in the right proportions mm. in order to to make uh, things work, just as the body of Christ needs people with different gifts. We don't need everybody to have the same gift. We don't have everybody to have the same personality. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, it could be that the personalities are less uh, amenable to being part of some of these organizations. Uh, it's a possibility. I think that is one really important thing, and it is, whatever your personality type is, I think it, you know, it's, there's that natural desire. You just hate working with those other, right. You know, the, the firebrands hate the company men, right. The let's all, let's hold it together. But on some level, right. Those, those are all important. And it makes me wonder if actually in the conservative institutional playbook, there's actually a level of institutional knowledge that, Hey, when this goes bad, we start again. Like that, that, because it's such a track record, if that is, you know, the PCA is set up in a way, so it's actually very easy for you to leave, right? There's an, an institutional thing was learned from the Southern Presbyterian Church, which is we've got to make sure they can't come for our property, you know, all of these things this time. And and obviously there's a good reason for that because of what happened, you know, and is what continues to happen as people try and leave the mainline church. But you know, it, it does, it, it seems to not give, it does not incentivize uh, staying in an institution, right? Or like staying in the PCA or, you know, these kinds of things like this. Right, exactly. I think you, it maybe just really, I maybe you can't do it briefly. I think uh, you gave a great, um, a, you told the story of how, the Lutheran Missouri Synod actually is an example of the conservatives theologically and culturally kind of retaking an institution. Can you just, I don't know, tell a little bit about why that's an important example or kind of what went on with that? Yes. Uh, the Lutheran church, Missouri Synod is one of the main Lutheran bodies in the United States that uh, traces its origins back to Germany uh, unlike in the Presbyterian world, the different Lutheran denominations are by and large not a product of splits. Uh, 
uh, Lutheranism was hyper, hyper fragmented and actually it sort of congealed, you know, over time into these uh, various groupings. Uh, the LCMS is one. And I believe it was back in the 1970s, uh, their seminaries were starting to adopt these historical critical methods of, you know, Bible interpretation. There was kind of liberalization afoot as happened in, you know, every denomination at that time. And a group of people, I believe the main guy behind it was a guy named Jacob Preuss. Uh, and his family is apparently still very active in, in the LCMS. Sort of made it his mission to uh, rectify the situation. And so it uh, started with a seminary. The flagship seminary was Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, he became the president of it and you know was starting to you know the root out these things he didn't like and basically the liberal staged a walkout and uh he essentially fired them all at the end of the day i mean it was like 95 essentially 95% of the faculty and most of the students left uh and called themselves the Concordia Seminary in Exile or Seminex and I think they thought that they were going to be able to take back over, but it didn't work out that way. And then ultimately, you know, a few liberal congregations did leave uh, and joined with what's now the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And so there, there was essentially a, a, a move in a conservative direction uh, there. I don't pretend to have all the details uh, on that. I would encourage you to read the Wikipedia page on Seminex which would give you a little bit of the history uh, there. Uh, but that was an example of something that, that came back. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the particular peculiarities of church governance and how the rules of these denominations work. So uh, there was a rule in the LCMS that you could not be ordained as a minister in the denomination, or you couldn't be hired as a minister of a church unless you had graduated from a denominational seminary. Uh, that is not the case in Presbyterianism. And so in the LCMS case, you know, if you cleaned house in the seminaries and controlled the seminaries, then you cut off the oxygen supply. Uh, you cut off the flow, <laughs> kind of cut off the flow. And so there were a lot of interesting little uh, nuances there. Uh, but apparently the people who uh, pulled that off were quite, knowledgeable of the rule book and we're willing to fight a lot of bureaucratic trench warfare in a way that conservatives have, have tended not to. And I believe the uh, LCMS situation was one of the inspirations for the Southern Baptist conservative resurgence, hmm. uh, which was another, you know, another example uh, of a sort of a reversal of a more uh, you know liberal denomination that had been trending in a more liberal direction. Right. And, and both you know, are more of a credit to these, I don't know what these kind of, they're more a credit to a bureaucratic mastermind than a, uh, like a, you know, a theological genius, right, in these modern settings. Right. I think with the conservative resurgence, the conservatives figured out that the majority of the people were conservative and that under the SBC, uh, you know, constitution, if they could win the presidency of the SBC for 10 consecutive years, they could take the whole thing over because the president like appoints all the members of this committee. So it's like 
through the various appointments to the various committees that would propagate over time, if you were able to maintain uh, the presidency for a decade or so, you could turn over all the entity heads and trustees and all of that. And, you know, essentially then you've, you've controlled, you know, controlled the denomination. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the Baptist world itself is radically different from Presbyterianism because this local church autonomy is fundamental to the Baptist system. It's congregationalist basically. Right. And so that Southern Baptist convention is not really a denomination per se. It's more of a cooperative organization there where Baptists come together to fund missions and seminaries and things of that nature. So a little bit, a little bit of a different, uh, different scenario there. Go yeah. On. I'm just wondering, um, you know, as we talk through these things, it seems often that we talk about maybe the, the typical trend seems to be you have this founding. This is within the church anyway. I don't know if you would say this is true um, more generally speaking, uh, but at least within the church, within denominational structures, it seems like you have very often this, you know, founding that is maybe more what we would term conservative. Um, and then over time, you have uh, a takeover of some kind um, that is by those who are more liberal or progressive in their outlook on things. Am I right to think that um, those who are progressive and liberal are better at taking over institutions, but not as good at building them themselves. Is that, is that a legitimate thing to think? It just seems like that is a common, a common theme. I don't see as much of the building of institutions from the more progressive end. Is that true? Yeah, I I think that's broadly accurate. What I would say that people on the left are very good at building political institutions, Hmm. but not so much at building functional institutions uh, in a sense, it's sort of like they don't have as many kids, but they're very good at taking your kids over yeah. to their way, their way of thinking. And I don't even, you know, one of the reasons that this happens, Gary North uh, wrote a book about the liberalization of the Northern Presbyterian Church during the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And one of the observations, his takeaways was there's sort of kind of two priorities you can have. One is doctrinal purity. And the other is missionalism. And the missionalism or the, the church growth mindset always wins because if your mindset is growth, then you will eventually get the numbers <laughs> and the numbers will enable you to take over. And so when you think about churches in America, you're trying to get people in the door. You're trying to carry out the Great Commission. What are you, you going to do? You're going to have, you're going to make, uh, as low a bar for entry as you can possibly justify. And if you don't personally do that, someone else will. So they're going to be people who are always going to say, we need to have a low bar to entry. We got, you know, let's not put any barriers between people and the gospel. Let's not worry about all these doctrinal points or all this liturgy or all this, this. And those people eventually attract a lot of adherence and then they, numerically overwhelm the organization. So you're almost, you know, the people who focus on a higher bar, more of a purity. So his conundrum is you can either have a small, pure denomination or essentially a large and drifting organization, uh, you know, at the end of the day, but it's hard to have a large uh, kind of pure organization. Right. Yeah, that is, that is tough. I think the other thing, um, and you have, 
you've talked a little bit about this is there is this um, concern of, you know, there's an emphasis on church planting, um, which is a good emphasis, just so all the listeners know, I am soon going to be part of planting a PCA church in an area where there are no reformed churches. Uh, But I think that as I've kind of entered this world more fully, you know, I'm now hearing from lots of people involved in all of these kinds of things. It strikes me as that oftentimes this emphasis on church planting doesn't come from the, the, the question isn't asked, how do we start a congregation that will be here in a hundred years, right? As these, many of these, uh, especially the larger cities have these congregations that have been there that long, right? They seem to be very much a, I don't know what the right word to describe it, is, um, you know, the goal, the goal is quick growth, right? Maybe that's what we're, maybe it's these two, I, I don't know if it's on this spectrum, but right, it's this, we want to achieve quick growth rather than uh, institutional longevity. Um, is that, is that kind of your, does that fall in line a little bit of your concern about how church planting kind of has caught on in the evangelical world and talking about it in the last 20 years. Um. You're right that they, these churches start and there are some of course there's a high failure rate for church startups, but the ones that succeed succeed in part because they're very tuned to the moment. Yep. The moment's always changing. And then pretty soon you are now the old congregation that's not very good anymore and go into the town decline. A lot of these churches succeed because they're sort of a charismatic founding pastor, particularly the mega churches, right. you know, when that pastor retires or moves on, you know, what happens. So there are some issues around longevity. I think the other thing that happens with these churches is that they pull, uh, they essentially parasitize existing churches and uh, weaken them, uh, you know, weaken mm. them. And I, I would ask that question, like, where are the people who are attending your church going to come from? Mm. And in my observation, especially in urban settings, a lot of them are coming from existing churches. So we're circulating a lot of, a lot of people through there. And so if you go back to, say, 1989, when uh, Tim Keller started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, he was like the only evangelical church there. And so there were a lot of new converts. You made a lot of new converts. I think that's probably much less the case that a church in Manhattan today um, mm. is making a lot of new converts. I think it would also be very interesting to go back at that era and ask how many people attending mainline churches in New York switched over to Redeemer when it became available uh, because there was like a, you know, a better option, uh, sure. if you will. Uh, yeah, I, it's just, um, this Roe versus Wade thing, the PCUSA's policy office in Washington issued a tweet talking about, you know, b- lamenting and bemoaning the fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned and saying, well, um, you know, this is horrible. We had a support of women's rights. And I see a tons and tons of conservative people retweeting that and tutting it. And this gives a very, very false view of 
what the average Presbyterian youth church USA congregation or average Episcopal church congregation or average, you know, evangelical Lutheran church in America congregation is like these congregations. I watched quite a few sermons from these mainline churches over the pandemic when they were all, now that everybody's sermons are online, I just check them out. Sure. And uh, by and large, these are not whack job, you know, congregations they tend to be extremely boring i mean that is their but their biggest <laughs> their problem is less wackiness than that they're very uh boring they're very much the kind of thing that my grandparents might have wanted to attend you know more so than like the right. current generation wants to attend they're very milk dosed in in what they're doing so that's sort of that is much more the problem i think with a lot of these churches and sort of uh, a wacky thing. So my, uh, you know, my guess is that there are probably uh, many faithful people who were in these churches uh, for a very long time. You just, you know, you had to pull them right over to the new church plant in Manhattan. And, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, that, that, that again, it weakens, it weakens any, any existing congregation. You know, I, I attended a church, uh, you know, a, a church in New York uh, during the period in which Keller retired. And, you know, you could see a lot of ex-Redeemer people <laughs> came over there. And, like, it's great that your church is there, but when your church is made up of a lot of refugees from other congregations and it's not a lot of, you know, new people, you know, what's going on? So I think, you know, right. um, I do think there's a, a question of, you should ask yourself, what is your purpose with this church? I'm mean, asking so many church plants. It's like they're like church in a box. You can mm. tell there's like a formula. It's it's this. It's like what is what is the purpose of this mm. thing? Who is it trying to reach? Well, um, you, you yeah. know. So I'm sure some yeah. of these things are very successful, um, but I I kind of um, I do kind of wonder, you know, if they're simply undermining existing congregations, um, and and not necessarily, um, you know, reaching a whole lot of new people. Right. Well, and. And great, because that is what is actually striking about what Keller did in Manhattan. He There was not a playbook, right? There wasn't a uh, playbook of what he was doing, right? Now, there are lots of people who have taken, whether it's directly taken his book, Center Church, or just tried to do what they think he's doing, you know, and tried to roll that out in every uh, urban center in the country. But right when he did it, that wasn't a, you know, it was a, the way he was church planning was a um, exception, not the rule. Whereas now that's kind of the, you know, methodology. Right. And he did reach large number of non-Christians. Right. And so you look at that and say, wow, you know, he, that's great. Are the average, are the average kind of church plant in an urban area doing the same thing? Now, I think a lot of people start churches in growing suburban areas because people are moving out there. You're going to serve that market. Um, you know, a lot of mainline congregations were planted that way. You know, a lot of people are moving to the suburb. We're going to create the Presbyterian church of this suburb. And, you know, not all these older mainline congregations are super old. A lot of them date to the era of suburbanization. So, you know, you do need to, you know, be responsive to demographic changes, things like that. So I'm not saying that everybody, you know, has to be a brand new convert uh, there, but I, I, I do believe people need to be attuned to 
the possibility that your church plant is merely weakening mm-hmm. existing faithful churches and is not really in that ad. The other thing I've said is there's just something off about a religion that's predicated on resurrection from the dead and claims that the gospel can totally transform and revolutionize and renew your life in a radical way. Yet somehow we believe the one thing the gospel can't change is an existing church. Mm. They're hopeless. They're dead. That's the only, you know, we're going to renew the city or something like that. We're going to bring transformation (laughs) to the city, but we can't transform our own older congregations. That's the one thing the gospel can't do apparently. And and I'm not saying that that proves anything, but there's just something that just always struck me as a little bit off about that. Well, it is interesting. I'll just share one. I I could share many things I've heard um, throughout the, having went started down this path it is interesting and it is a thing that i i largely reject um but right people will say church planting is really good even primarily as an evangelism strategy because church plants are you know the established churches aren't the churches that are going to be able to do evangelism it's church plants that will do it and even if that's the case which you know uh, i've you know i'm i'm not enough to know the difference of these things it is it again it's exactly what you're saying it would be strange to say an existing church that's supposed filled with the spirit they're not gonna we just can't get them to ever do evangelism in their community and then it but right it's then when you then plant a church it's then the well this time you know our you know whatever this new plant will be some for some reason is going to be uh, the silver bullet on that or right. it'll just exist and then someone else will have to come plant again uh, right thank you for joining us this week you are going to have to Tune in next week to hear the rest of our conversation with Aaron Wren. Hey, it's Restless Summer, so we're taking time in our interviews, spending time with people, talking about a lot of things. So we are splitting it into two weeks. It's going to be great. Also, back on Patreon, you can find me asking Aaron Wren about his thoughts on Roe v. Wade and evangelicals if all the Republican voting paid off in light of the recent Supreme Court decision. All right, you can sign up for that for $3 a month. So get there and enjoy your restless summer. We'll catch you next week.